This morning we're going to continue our study from uh, last Sunday evening, which is part of our series of studies from the letters, or from Paul's letters to Timothy. And as I explained last week, uh, the passage that I was assigned, verses 11 through 21, we took a pretty thorough look at verse 11 alone last week, and so I will be picking up from there as we consider verses 12 through 21. While I was preparing my PowerPoint for last week's study, I, I searched for a picture that showed someone running away from one thing while chasing after another, uh, as Paul uh, instructs us there to pursue and flee, um, or flee and pursue, rather. But this was the only thing I, I found, and uh, I was afraid that some of the artists in the audience would judge me harshly, and so I didn't use that uh, last week. But I did find this picture, which I thought was pretty interesting, and this ties verse 11 to verse 12, which we're going to uh, spend quite a bit of time with this morning. That is that Paul instructs us, yes, to flee, and to pursue or follow, as the uh, graphic has it here, but then also to fight. Paul adds the instruction to fight. And so, as I said last week, it's hard enough to try to run away from something while you're also running toward something else, but yet at the same time, we're also supposed to be fighting. Now, this metaphor that uh, Paul uses here, there's a little bit of question, I suppose, as to, to what it could refer to. Uh, the Greek word for fight can refer to entering an athletic contest, competing for a prize. Uh, and that was common in, in Paul's day. But it can also refer to, um, in a military sense, fighting uh, as opposing an enemy or an adversary. And obviously Paul's not speaking literally of, of either one of these uh, here. And so I think we could take this, this metaphor uh, to apply figuratively either way. Paul did speak in other places about running the Christian race and attaining the prize. And, and so um, that athletic reference uh, could be what he had in mind here. But the military metaphor was also a favorite of Paul's. He spoke of putting on the whole armor of God. He spoke of uh, enduring hardships like a good, as a good soldier. He talked about being in a spiritual warfare. And, and I'm sure there are many other references uh, that are made in his epistles to, to military um, references. So whichever Paul had in mind, as I said, I think uh, both of them apply. But we're going to take the military spin, if you will, as we consider Paul's admonition here to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. There's a well-known term in the religion of Islam that probably has a bad connotation to most of us as Americans. Uh, it's the term jihad. Jihad, uh, which is also sometimes translated as holy war, but in general it means a struggle. And on a personal level, we do have an inner, an inner struggle um, against evil within ourselves. On a public level, there's the struggle for, for justice and goodness. And then, of course, on a military level, there's struggles on the battlefield. Now, we as Christians know that, that we are followers of, of the Prince of Peace, and His kingdom is spiritual, and, and it's not expanded through physical warfare. In fact, Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, but my kingdom is not from here. In fact, Jesus taught that all who take the sword will perish by the sword, Matthew 26 and 52. And so, obviously, Paul is not talking about here a physical Warfare, And that, that's where many Muslims have it all wrong. They try to apply this idea of a jihad to, to physical warfare. That's probably why Americans, uh, quite frankly, are, are so wary of them. 
But at the risk of sounding dramatic, allow me to propose that we as Christians do have our own holy war. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 18, Paul had charged Timothy to wage the good warfare. And Paul makes it clear here in our text that we are to fight the good fight of faith. Thayer says that that word fight there means figuratively to contend or struggle with difficulties and dangers that are opposed to the gospel. And that reminds me of that, that well-known exhortation in Jude 3, which tells us to contend, I believe that's the same word there, contend earnestly for the faith. And so in that sense, we all have a so-called holy war that we are fighting. And so what all is involved in this war? Well, first of all, notice that um, it's a fight for the faith. And by the faith, we mean the doctrine of Christ, the gospel. Paul told the Ephesians that there was one faith, just as, just as surely as there was one God and one Lord and one Spirit, Ephesians 4 and verse 5. Jude 3 says to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In Philippians 1 and 27, Paul referred to it as the faith of the gospel. And of course, he would warn the Galatians that those who would pervert the gospel, saying that um, if anyone, even an apostle, even an angel, he said, preached any other gospel, that he should be cursed. And so it is the faith, the one and only faith that we are fighting for. And that kind of gives us an idea of who we're fighting against, who the enemy is. It's anyone who might oppose the gospel of Christ. That includes those who deny it, but also those who might try to alter it. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in large part to warn him about and tell him how to fight false doctrine and false teachers. But Paul also told the Ephesians that we fight against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. I know those are scary thoughts, but that's our enemy. And then ultimately, of course, we fight against our number one enemy, Satan, our adversary, as Peter calls him in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Revelation 12 and 17 describes Satan as making war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so our enemy is, is very real. Uh, not only those who would oppose the gospel, but again, these uh, powers, wicked powers, and especially Satan himself. Thankfully, though, God has not left us defenseless. He has equipped us with uh, weapons of, of warfare. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so we have weapons that we can fight this war with. I do want to insert a word of warning here. While we are to, to fight against false doctrine, and in that sense I believe our, our war is to be one of offense, we don't just sit back and, and defend, we attack false doctrine, if you will, when it's appropriate. However, we must never lose sight of, of the goal. The goal is not just to win an argument. We mentioned this last week, how some people argue for the sake of arguing. And Paul condemns what he calls useless wranglings in verses 4 and 5 of our text. The goal of attacking error is never to destroy others. 
The goal is to bring them to the truth. And I love what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 24 through 26. He said, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Again, our goal, even when we attack false doctrine, is not really to attack the person, but it is to hopefully convince them of the truth. And notice what Paul says there uh, in verse 26. He says that these who are, are overtaken by uh, false doctrine, if you will, that they are caught in snares of the devil. They've been taken captive. And so to use this analogy, those who follow false doctrine, they're like prisoners of war. And our goal is not to destroy them. Our goal is to try to free them. Well, besides weapons of warfare, God has also provided us with protection against the, the weapons that the devil uses. He's provided us with the whole armor of God as it's described in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The idea that we need protection, I think, brings up a, another point. Not only are we fighting for the faith, but we're also fighting for our faith. That is, our own personal trust and conviction. Satan doesn't just attack the church as a whole. He doesn't just attack the truth of the gospel. He also attacks individuals. Peter warned in 1 Peter 2 and 11 of fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. That's the soul of an individual. And so each of us must be on guard to defend our own spiritual lives. Well, even though we're fighting our own personal battle, we must also remember that, that we are not alone. First and foremost, of course, God is on our side. Paul asked in Romans 8 and 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so that certainly should give us comfort and, and should give us strength. But in addition to that, we have our brothers and sisters to fight with us and for us. In Philippians 1 and 27, Paul tells the Christians there that his wish is that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I love how the, the ESV puts that. It says striving side by side. And so if we're picturing this war and we're fighting side by side, it, it brings to my mind the picture of a, a united army of, of brothers in arms who are marching into battle and defending the cause of Christ. And if one member breaks ranks, so to speak, then his fellow soldiers are there to pick him up and help him back on the right path. The Bible teaches us to exhort or encourage one another daily. And so we have one another to, to fight this battle together. Well, I'm sure there's much more that could be said about fighting the good fight of faith, but, but we need to move on uh, to consider the rest of this passage. In fact, we haven't even gotten all the way through verse 12 yet. Um, Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And what's the ultimate goal of, of that fight? Paul says it's to lay hold on eternal life. Now, I believe this could refer to blessings that we can enjoy here in this life. In 1 John 5, John seems to speak of eternal life as if it's something we've already obtained through Christ. He says, God has given us eternal life, and he who has the Son has life, and that he's written these things that you may know that you have 
eternal life. And so, again, perhaps this could refer to blessings that we enjoy on this earth. But I think in our text, most of us would probably agree that more than likely Paul is referring to our future hope, that which is promised by God, according to Titus 1 and verse 2, that which is our inheritance, according to Titus 3 and verse 7, that which will be received at the judgment, according to Matthew 25 and 46. And so to, to lay hold or to seize this future hope, there are things that we must do now. In other words, Paul isn't tell, telling Timothy to, to go ahead and get your eternal reward right now. Go ahead and go to heaven right now. Obviously, that's not what he's saying. He's telling him to get a grip on it, so to speak, to maintain a firm hold on it, to never let it go. In fact, in verse 19, which we're going to notice in a moment, Paul tells Timothy to instruct those who are rich how they can store up treasure for the future so that they can ultimately, and he uses this phrase again there in verse 19, lay hold on eternal life. The point is God has offered the, the gift of salvation. He's offered eternal life to all who will respond to his call. Notice the phrase there, to which you were called. And we seize or we lay hold, we accept that gift through obedience to the gospel. In fact, Paul reminds Timothy that at one time, having heard and having believed this saving message of the gospel, that he had made the good confession. And most commentators agree that Paul probably has in mind there the confession that we make prior to baptism in our obedience to the gospel, our confession that we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch said before Philip baptized him in Acts 8 and 37. And as the text refers to it in verse 13, it was Jesus' own confession of being the Christ, the Son of God, that got him condemned and sent to Pilate for execution. Notice that Paul says that Timothy made this good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I'm not exactly sure what Paul meant by that. Maybe he's speaking about those witnesses that the book of Hebrews talks about. Um, but one commentator offered a reasonable explanation, I thought, and it's, it's a beautiful thought as well. He said that in the early church, the baptism of an individual, it was a matter in which the, the whole church generally took an interest and a part. In other words, a large number of members of the church would gather to witness a baptism. As I said, I think that's a beautiful picture. It's one that many of us perhaps uh, have from our childhood. In days past, a, a large group of people would, would gather maybe at a, Greek, a creek rather, or a pond to witness a baptism. And I can remember times when it would take place at night, and so people would pull their cars down and, and point their headlights toward the water so that everyone could, could see. What a better way to welcome a new brother or sister into the church than to be there as a family when they rise from the waters of baptism. Well, notice that twice Paul calls it the good confession. And so for a few moments, moments, I want us to consider what is it that makes it good? First of all, it's the good confession because Christ himself made it. As he references there in verse 13, uh, in fact, under oath, no less, before the Sanhedrin court, Jesus was asked by the high priest, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Mark 14 and 61. And Jesus' reply was clear. He simply said, I am. It was upon that charge that Jesus was condemned to be crucified. John 19 and 7, after being asked of Pilate what crime he had committed, the Jews responded, We have a law, and according to our, our law, he ought to die. 
Why? Because he made himself the Son of God. Christ made this good confession, and he died for making it so that you and I can make it and live. Think about the irony in that. He made it and died because of it so that you and I can make it and live because of it. Secondly, I also think this is a good confession because God himself made it at least twice. Uh, speaking out of heaven in broad open daylight, God proclaimed Jesus as his son. Once at his baptism, uh, Matthew 3 and verse 17 says there, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son and who I'm, whom I'm well pleased. And then God spoke similar words at the transfiguration in Matthew 17 and 5. It says that, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God himself proclaimed Jesus as his Son. If that doesn't make it a, a good thing, I don't know what else could. Thirdly, though, it's a good confession because all men, both evil and righteous, will one day make it. We will all confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Since we all must make it eventually, it only makes sense that we should make it in this life and be saved rather than waiting until it's too late. Fourthly, this is a good confession because it's a vital part of the plan of salvation. And I think this is made clear by what we read in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul there says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That word unto there carries with it the idea of leading to or going toward. And so confession is an important step in salvation. Fifthly, confessing Jesus as the Son of God is a good confession because we're told that Christ, in turn, will confess those who make it. He said in Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now, whether Jesus is referring to confessing us before God at the moment that we obey the gospel, or if he's speaking of the judgment, I'm not sure. But either way, it's something that we definitely want to happen. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that for those who do not confess him before men, he will deny them before the Father in heaven. If we want Jesus to recognize us and introduce us, if you will, to the Father as one of his own, then we must be willing to be one of his own during this life. As we said, we will confess him on that day. But if we wait until then, then it will be too late. This good confession is also good because it's been made by saints of all ages. Ever since Jesus made himself known to man. Let me share with you just a short list of cases in the New Testament where this confession was made or a similar one to it. Uh, on the night he was born, the angels of heaven proclaimed, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. <coughs> Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas recognized Jesus as my Lord and my God. At the crucifixion, the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus after they witnessed 
the events surrounding Jesus' death, they declared, truly, this was the Son of God. Just prior to this, the thief on the cross had begged him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so he confessed him as Lord and King. And then in our text, we find that Timothy also made this good confession. Finally, I propose that the confession is good because it, it truly is a summary of all Christian doctrine. Everything depends upon this, Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. It's the rock of our salvation. In fact, it was upon this great rock, this truth uh, of this confession, as voiced by Peter, that Jesus said he would build his church. Someone has said that it's the deepest, most profound fact revealed in Scripture. But yet, ironically, it is easily understood. And I like how one commentator put it very poetically. Speaking about this good confession, he said, Like the mighty ocean, it has shallows where a child may play, but yet great deeps that have never been fathomed. And so truly, this is the, the good confession, and I hope that we all appreciate uh, that fact. Moving on, though, in verses 13 through 15, Paul continues his charge to Timothy. He says in verse 13, I urge you, or the King James Version says, I give, I give thee charge. This whole letter, in essence, has been a charge, a command, an order to Timothy. But Paul shows the seriousness of this matter by stating that this charge is in the sight of or according to God, who gives life to all things, and before or sanctioned by Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying that he has certainly the proper authority to make this charge. That is clear. And so what is this, this next charge that Paul gives Timothy? He says in verse 14 that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Now I have to admit to you, I don't really know what this commandment refers to here. Uh, the Greek word that's translated as keep can be a little bit ambiguous. It can mean to observe, as in to observe or obey a command. And so perhaps Paul is referring to the charges that he's given in the preceding verses, keep this commandment, mean give the, keep the commandments that I've just given you, such as those about fleeing and pursuing and fighting. Um, but it could also mean to keep or to maintain uh, in the state that it's in, to, to guard, if you will, the purity of God's word and his commandments. After all, that was part of fighting the good fight, to defend it against false doctrine. The same Greek word that's used for keep here um, is used in 1 Corinthians 7.37 in reference to keeping a virgin pure. And that makes sense, especially in light of, of what Paul says in this verse about keeping the commandment without spot. Again, though, that could just refer to Timothy's character being above reproach. And so exactly what he means, maybe we're not sure, but whichever the case, Paul says that this command must be kept until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Some people have taken that to mean that they think, they think that Paul thought that Christ would return during Timothy's lifetime. But I think it's clear that, that Paul means for Timothy to keep it throughout his own lifetime and never to give up, never to waver. In fact, in the very next verse, 15, Paul says that Jesus' return will be in his own time. We don't know when Jesus will return. It's up to him. Uh, but but whatever that might be, you continue to keep these commandments, Paul says. Well, next, in, in verses 15 and 16, 
Paul kind of uh, bursts out, if you will, in, in praise. And I like what Brother Ron Corder observes here in his uh, commentary on these verses. He says, it's as if the thought of, of Jesus' return that's mentioned there in verse 14 seems to, to launch Paul into this doxology, which again is just an outburst of praise. In verses 15 and 16, he recognizes Christ as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. For time's sake, we're not going to take a, a deep dive into all that's implied here, because honestly, I think that deserves a study of its own. Paul says a lot right there. But, but I will note just a, a couple of phrases there. He mentions Jesus as the, the potentate. That's not a word that we're very familiar with, but it refers to a sovereign, a, a prince of high authority and power. He refers to him as king of kings, implying that, that Jesus reigns rather over all, that he is the Lord of lords. He is controller of all. And certainly to him belongs all honor and power and praise. In verses 17 through 19, Paul seems to kind of circle back to a discussion that he had had earlier in this chapter regarding riches. And Brother David previously uh, covered that topic in verses 5 through 10, and so we won't rehash all of that. But suffice it to say, Paul stated in verse 10 that that famous quote that we all probably know, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. As Brother David pointed out uh, in that study, Paul didn't say that money itself is evil. In fact, I think that's made clear by the fact that here in verses 17 through 19, it seems that Paul assumes that there are some Christians currently living in Ephesus who are rich. And notice that Paul does not condemn them. Their wealth did not make them sinners. However, he does give them some advice because I think he recognizes that the way that they think about their wealth, that does have the potential of making them sin. Notice that Paul doesn't tell these wealthy Christians to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. Now that's what Jesus had told the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 21. But that's not what Paul tells the, these rich Christians here. Why not? Well, I think that's because that's what that young man needed to hear. He had placed his money before God. And so what Paul does tell Timothy is to command those who are rich to do three things. First, they were not to be haughty or high-minded. They must not allow their riches to cause them to think they were better than others or that others were not worth their time or attention. Secondly, he tells rich Christians not to place their trust in their riches. As Paul had said earlier, no man will take any earthly wealth with him when he dies. And so there's no need to, to put our trust in that. Our hope should be in God. And then thirdly, Timothy is to command them that they do good, to be rich in good works, to be ready to give and willing to share. When wealthy Christians are willing to help others, they lay up treasures in heaven where true life, eternal life, will be experienced. Well, Paul ends his letter to Timothy with a final admonition. He urges him to guard what was committed to his trust. And I think this echoes the, the ideas that we've already discussed about keeping the purity of the gospel. Perhaps Paul has some particular danger in mind here. 
Uh, he warns against profane and idle babblings and contradictions of, of what is falsely called knowledge or so-called knowledge, I believe uh, the King James Version has it, um, which has caused some to stray from the faith. So, so it does seem like maybe Paul has some particular danger in mind. And, and some commentators believe that, that Paul is alluding to uh, something that had started to take root about his time and, and later would become a, a big problem, a big movement in the religious world. It was called Gnosticism, and, and that's not a word that we use uh, very much today, but it was definitely a problem uh, in the early church. In fact, I think we probably see um, what's left of it or see results of it even today. But, but whether Paul was talking about um, the specific danger or whether he was talking about dangers in general, again, he urges Timothy to guard what's been committed to his trust, to guard the truth, to fight the good fight of faith. And that was important certainly to Timothy as a young evangelist, but it's important to all of us as Christians as well.